Welcome to the Mastering the Mind podcast, where we take you through professional elite athletes and coaches' stories about how they cope with the psychological demands of competing at elite level. Today, we welcome British wheelchair fencer Piers Gilliver to the podcast. Piers competes in both the EPE and Sabre and has competed in various European and world championships. Piers has also recently been recognized with an MBE after his success at the Tokyo 2020 Paralympic Games. Some of Piers' major accomplishments have been winning gold at the Tokyo 2020 Paralympics in the EPA event, winning silver in the Team Foil event and bronze in the Team EPI event, winning a silver medal at the 2016 Rio and 2020 Tokyo Paralympics. Piers also won gold at the IWAS World Championships in 2019, as well as silver at the European Championships in both 2016 and 2018 in the EPA event. So that's welcome, Piers, to the podcast. Fantastic. Ah, there we go. Let's go. <laughs> oh, this is this is why we're so excited to be doing a face-to-face podcast. Um, yeah, Te- technology. <laughs> yeah, no, no. But uh, how you been, mate? How how's everything? Yeah, it's going well, thanks. Yeah, how you how you guys? Yeah, good, good. Uh, a bit tired today. It's been a it's been a difficult day, but uh, we're here and we're doing the podcast, so that's all that matters. Okay. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> We've got some technical issues, so now should be playing so now. <laughs> uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully the Zoom gods, please be nice to us. But, uh, <laughs> no, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, a great place we like to start with our guests. Look, like getting straight into it is um, for the listeners to get to know you. So talk us through your journey today. Uh, so growing up to where you are now, who is Piers Gilliver? Um, yeah, so I guess uh, for my kind of story, um, yeah, as a kid, I was never really interested in sport at all. Um, and then just basically like years went down the line, I kind of, um, my kind of sort of slave progressive disability. Um, and then one day I was kind of thought, I kind of want to change things up a bit, do something more in my life and decided to just pick up a hobby. Um, so just scrolling through the internet one day and saw these different Paralympic sports, but Having never been sporty before, nothing really kind of took my interest. And then just came across wheelchair fencing, just and I thought, wow, that's such a strange sport. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I just thought, okay, it looks really interesting, something a bit different, a bit more unusual. Um, and so I kind of had a look and knowing nothing about fencing and wasn't sure how much was available. And then saw there was a local club near me, um, and I thought, okay no excuse not to at least give it a go you know it's interesting it's nearby like let's, let's just see what happens um so yeah basically the coach there he was uh, you know really great and kind of got you know learned about wheelchair fencing so he could teach me and yeah from day one i just got hooked really um just yeah for me it was such a fascinating sport uh, so, such a combination of you know physicality all the technical details but one that really grasped me was the, the uh, tactical side um and i found that just really really fascinating the idea of like tricking people with moves you know trying to out trick each other and I, I, so from day one I, I just loved it really um this was 2010 when i first started um and then from there um i just slowly people always talk about where was the defining moment where you took the sport seriously um for me there never really was one i just suddenly appeared at different places you know yeah. Um, I, it's always like you always wanted a bit more. Um, you never really think anything's possible, as, as, you know, taking it that seriously. Um, and then it's just okay, I'll try a club competition, a 
Okay, now I try watch a fencing competition and um, the national championships. And then before you know it, you kind of realize, well, how, how did I get here? You know, looking into nationals. And um, so it really was, you know, for me, like an amazing journey, but um, yeah, quite a, a sort of, a sort of uh, yeah, kind of interesting one where, where I kind of came from. Um, so once I kind of, so I kind of got involved um, around London 2012 sport. Um, so kind of got to see it. Um, didn't compete in London, um, but kind of you know, saw the guys I trained with go, and that was just an amazing experience. And for me, watching in the audience, I was like, wow, if I could just get one hit on these guys, you know, that'd be the dream. So, yeah. and then I knew that Rio um, was, was my goal. Um, so I basically kept on training until uh, qualified for Rio, and then, you know, went on that, uh, won silver, and now another few years of competition and uh, competing in Tokyo where I won uh, gold, silver and bronze. So that's, that's where I'm at now, really, <laughs> in a nutshell. Yeah, I saw a picture on social media and it looks so satisfying having the all the colours of like you know the different medals. Like, yeah, it must be it must be nice to to have that. Um, just taking it back. So, did you maybe try any other sports before kind of fencing? Um, or was it literally fencing was like the sport you wanted to do at first? Like, or I think for me, where I did sport, um, like um, when I was a kid at school, um, yeah. I never really liked it, and then. So all those kind of sports never really took my interest. And mm. so fencing really was the, the first one that really kind of made me think kind of outside the box. I used yeah. to do a bit of horse riding when I was younger. Um, um, but again, I never, really, you know, saw that as a kind of competitive sport. It was more just something I enjoyed. And then, yeah. so yeah, wheelchair fencing was the f- first sport I really kind of sank my teeth into. Really. Yeah, I've tried fencing before and it's, uh, it's quite a technical sport. You have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> really? yeah. We... we um, we went to like a, a school trip where it was called it was called outdoor pursuits and it's in Leicester, and um, part of theirs was uh, their like activities was to get like dressed up and, and, and do fencing and uh, yeah for sure like it's a technical sport and uh, I'm not very good at it, I can tell you that. <laughs> Have you ever tried the jump? Run there, yeah. No, never tried it. Never tried it. It, it looks uh, yeah, it looks good. tough. It looks tough. Yeah. Um, yes. No. Yeah. Um, did you have any, so once you kind of entered that fencing world, did you, did you have any inspirations or any athletes that, you know, you looked up, you looked up to or anything like that? Or I'm curious. When I first started, there was um, a British wheelchair fencer, uh, Simon Wilson. Okay. Um, so for him, we kind of went to training camps together and national competitions and he was, you know, really great. He kind of really took me under his wing and taught me so much. Um, so for him, for, for, for me, he was like someone I really looked up to at that stage. Mm. And then once I kind of, you know, got sort of on, on the international scene, um, there was a, a French fencer, um, uh, Romain Noble. And yeah, just always, you know, really inspired me of how I kind of want to fence. You know, technically just beautiful fencer, you know, really tactical. Um, so for me, yeah, his, his style of fencing really kind of, kind of made, made me sure, like, actually, I really like these parts and that's the kind of, the style I want to go down. So, for me, he was you know big inspiration for a long time. Um, and in, in Tokyo, uh, he, he was his last last competition. He just retired. So, for me, that was you know a nice special moment to, to fence him for the last time at, at, at the games. So. Yeah. Okay. So obviously, you, you compete in the Paralympics. I think it's really important, especially for our audience listening. If you could sh- sort of shed some light um, on your condition, the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. 
um, you know, what that is, what it involves, um, and things like that. If you could give our audience, you know, uh, some info about it. So for me, um, yeah, I've kind of had um, issues for a while with sort of a neuromuscular condition and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So with these, it kind of affects me in different ways. Um, I think the easiest way to describe it to sort of the lay person is kind of like, uh, I can use uh, my muscles, but they're kind of weaker. Um, okay. um, but particularly in my, in my legs. Um, so I think that's probably, you know, easiest way to describe it. And I kind of was that uh, able-bodied as a kid, kind of got progressively worse. Um, so yeah, then suddenly Paralympics give an option. <laughs> yeah, when I was reading around it, um, I saw that you it can be quite susceptible to dislocations and things like that. Is, is that something that happens quite often for you or do you not really suffer with that? Uh, yeah, it's, for me, it, it's an issue. Um, yeah. I think especially one of my issues is, you know, it, where you move so much within the wheelchair. Yeah. Um, yeah, my, it's quite prone to my knee dislocating. Um, okay. So it's just one of those things like, it's just, I think like sport and perfect sports, um, it's all about yeah, adapting and yeah, so yeah. small changes really, you can kind of get on with it from there really. <laughs> what does the recovery look like for you uh, compared to obviously traditionals, you know, your you ice baths and that? I'm, I'm sure that maybe your recovery is much more in depth. Um, talk us through your recovery process um, after events. Yeah, I think for me, yeah, my kind of, because it's a sort of systematic problem. Um, yeah. yeah, it kind of means that, yeah, training wise has to be adapted quite a bit. So. For the most part, you know, I'm able to sort of carry on with the rest of my teammates, but I think with the more specific sort of gym training stuff, it's kind of like a different approach. Um, so yeah, my, my sort of gym coach kind of, with each of us on the team has quite different disabilities, so everyone's kind of got different ways of managing it, so just kind of each follow different paths, really. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned that your kind of career, like, went quite quickly so you, you started in 2010 and then already in 2012 you were representing uh, the British team so how was that kind of for you progressing so quickly were you like I don't know did you kind of realize like okay I could potentially do something here in the sport and tell us more about that like your kind of mindset and going through that that period that rapid rise to success I would say yeah I think for me it was kind of um I never really took it and never thought anything was possible mm. um it really was starting the sport it's just something to you know something to do something to shift a bit of weight <laughs> um and so I, I you don't really think about these things being possible and you kind yeah. of think that okay it kind of happens to other people you know kind of you know people in different situations and um yeah it kind of a similar thing like it wasn't really a sudden okay now it's a big it's a big deal it kind of kind of step by step and for me uh i think a lot of people talk about the, the rise you know to success being quite tough but for me psychologically it was you know it was a great time because there's always you know sort of outcome-based goals that you can quite easily focus on so first starting it was you got your club competitions just do better than that and then you've got the national competitions you know and there's always one person to go better than you know one step one step and same thing went internationally, you know, for my career, really. Yeah, the early days were just, I loved every minute, you know, um, because you're really enjoying the sport. You know, if, if you lose, it's like, okay, I kind of know where my level is. Obviously, some competitions are really disappointing. You don't get what you want, but there's always the next one, the next, you know, going from rank 300, <laughs> you know, to step yeah. by step by step, you know, trying to raise those, get up the ladder. So, 
for me, yeah, that I really enjoyed that time of like having those kind of those goals. No, yeah, definitely. Um, you also mentioned that you were part of the 2012 uh, Paralympic Inspiration Program. Um, we actually had a guest on uh, Jack Hunter Spivey that I think he also uh, attended that that program. Um, I'm curious, like, what are the kind of lessons you learned throughout that experience? Because it must have been crazy, you know, being a part of the home Paralympics. Um, yeah, t- tell us more about the, the types of things you were able to pick up there. For me, it was kind of like two, two parts to it, really. There was the part of um, understanding what a games actually is, because... I think mm. there's a kind of misconception, you know, within athletes as, as much as the general public that a Paralympic Games or Olympic Games is just any other competition, whereas actually it, it's a completely different thing, um, and in in so many different ways. And so to sort of see what that's like really gave me an idea of when I, when I was going to Rio, kind of really what to expect. I think the other big side of it is actually, I think everyone comes into sport from, or any sport from a sense of you just want something to do, you start off at low club level. And then it's, there's a big difference, I think, between being a sports person and being an athlete. And I think this program taught me very well was what that difference is, you know, the professionalism, the difference in mindset, the way things kind of work are very different. Um, so for me, that was the biggest takeaway really is, yeah, kind of really gave me an idea of how I need to change and how I need to be as, as an athlete. What were the specifics like when you talk about that? What what exactly did you actually change? What what were the kind of things? I'm curious. <laughs> Sorry about that, but <laughs> um, so that's my memory after the ten years. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> um, the biggest one I think is, I think when you start off in a sport, you think if you get good at the sport, you'll be the best at the sport. Mm-hmm. Whereas you know now and and then it was the key message then was actually the sport's one of the, the least important things actually. <laughs> Um, it's all about, you know, the process, the psychology, you know, all the wraparound of, you know, you know, the gym, you know, the, you know, the physio, the, the psych. So actually it becomes, yeah, actually the sport's almost irrelevant in itself, you know? Um, and so that was, I think to me, the key takeaway is actually, okay, I can be great at fencing, but I need to be great at being an athlete. <laughs> That's more important. Mm. You talk about the process there. So the lead up to the 2016 Rio Paralympics obviously was massive for you. You were named junior world champion. You came back to back world titles, finished the 2015 season as world number one. What was helping you in that process to help you thrive um, to achieve all them things leading into the 2016 Rio Paralympics? I think for me, Rio was the Rio cycle was a big uh, learning experience. You know, I, I went from, you know, just after London slowly sort of getting odd results and then when not really knowing if not even believing to be honest qualification was possible and then 2014 hit and the first qualifiers and there I kind of won the first three golds back to back of the qualifiers and then that was quite a sort of shock of okay wow it's actually now it's a possibility and then within that cycle as well um, there was a lot of changes so for me that was the biggest challenge came when actually you've now achieved you know what you've always wanted that and that to me that was the much harder challenge is, is remaining there um i think rising through the ranks is the easiest thing to do psychologically because you've got these little little um little breadcrumbs <laughs> I mean. yeah, um, whereas you know, when you get to the top 
you know, by all means, I was not dominant at all. You know, I was losing matches here and there, but still, psychologically, it's very difficult to sort of break that ha break that thought of you know actually you've you've done what you wanted to do. Um, mm -hmm. And so for me, one of the biggest sort of learning points from this period was again the psychology, um, how how much that impacted my performance. So I think mm -hmm. people have this idea of athletes being these people that have pictures of medals on the wall they dream about medals and they go to the gym pumped every day and <laughs> i think yeah. the reality is you know it, it, it's a tough job you know, it's so intense so, so much focus that actually for the most part there isn't that motivation um i think especially when you get to the top level so for me the biggest sort of learning point is again just break down the process how what psychological state do i need to perform and how do i get there I think I spent too long kind of trying to you know, bash it. Of, I must, I must be motivated. I must be motivated. But if, if you don't feel it, you don't feel it. And it's all about how to, um, yeah, how, how to get yourself in the right state, sort of more, more logically than emotionally, really. Yeah. You've spoken a lot about, obviously, on the lead up to being at the top. Um, it's all about, you know, the outcome in terms of, you know, bumping your way up. Um, now you, you're at the top, but we'll talk later on about how you got to the top, but now you're at the top, what are you focusing on um, in terms of, you know, outcome? Um, what, what's keeping you motivated uh, to keep um, succeeding in fencing? I think for me now, um, the key focus is purely process. Okay. Um, I think from an outcome perspective, um, it's, it's almost irrelevant. <laughs> um, I think as long as, you, you know, you, you take those boxes of training and, you're always pushing for more and as long if, if, if you're doing everything you can every single day if you don't win you don't win you know yeah. if you do you do um maybe someone's better or maybe, you know whatever it might be it's kind of for me what my kind of the thing that makes me focus the thing i focus on now is the idea of is everything as, as the best it can be um rather than an idea of okay i, I want to get this medal or on that result the problem is if you focus on the outcome, there's there's no way to get there. Uh, so for me now, it's a kind of idea of focus on just get getting what you need to do every day and then kind of see what happens, really. No, definitely. I think that's something we promote a lot on, on this podcast is focusing on the process. Because, you know, if you don't achieve that outcome that you, you're so striving for, it can lead to a lot of psychological distress. Um, would you recommend, um, looking back on your journey to the top, would you recommend to athletes who are making their way to the top to focus on the process more than the outcome now? Um, if you could, if you compare the your yours to where you are now, I think it's definitely a mix of both. I think you need you need that kind of focus on the process on a daily basis. You know, um, you know you can be as motivated as anyone, but if you're not doing the basics, then you know. So I think the process is really what you need to get down to, but also. If, 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 if outcome is what works for you, then find little outcomes, you know? And I think for myself, looking back at this stage, yeah, I, I should have enjoyed that more. <laughs> at that stage, outcome worked for me. And it doesn't mean I would have not done the process, but actually it was a good motivator. So really make the most of it, actually enjoy it more, I think. 100%. It's a, I think it is a combination of the both. Both serve a real good purpose. And um, yeah, whatever works. I mean, you got to the top, so <laughs> sure it worked. <laughs> it seems like you, so 
this was going to be a question we're going to ask you later on, but I think now is the perfect time. So was this kind of period uh, your kind of first introduction to sports psychology? So, for example, were you potentially working on that side uh, of of the of the sport with with someone, or is it just purely you, or speaking with you know family members, or what what was that? I think you know for me as a kind of person, I'd always had kind of like rough ideas. You know, you kind of okay, I want to listen to music at this stage. Okay, I don't want to listen to this. So you kind of pick up as you go along a lot of it but for me you know the the Rio cycle really was when I actually had a much much sort of um much more professional input and the difference was you know hugely dramatic because you can kind of have ideas by yourself but it is very kind of vague whereas having an expert to really give you ideas and advice you know me yeah, I made such a difference um and the problem I had was at one stage if I was motivated to win the competition I, I would if I wasn't motivated I'd come dead last um yeah. so i was hugely inconsistent because it was basically on the day am i feeling it or not couldn't really control it so it was like a flip of a coin basically mm. um whereas what the psychology allowed me to do was really understand myself and then understand what i needed to get to this place so then once i kind of was able to do that the consistency, consistency came rather than just hoping for the best yeah in terms of that psychology what do you think are the most important like psychological attributes for uh, either to become a successful athlete or a fencer? What do you feel makes you so successful other than just, uh, we spoke about the process, but, but what else is important for to become a successful athlete? I think uh, it's, in, it's an interesting question where what makes a great athlete, what makes a great fencer? And to yeah. me, it's the same thing. It's, it's the, key, the key core sort of things. I think for me, the number one thing is ownership um so i think yeah you see a lot of athletes they kind of they wait for the coach to tell them something they wait for no one told me this i won't do it they 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 turn up for sessions they do the session they think that's it you know whereas to me where i see great athletes you know is is that ownership they go to the coach i i want i want to know this i want to know this what's this what's that they ask questions um they don't wait for people to, to sort of um to give them advice they're kind of hungry for advice and learning and they kind of sounds bad but using people <laughs> so you've got a psych here using for asking as many questions as possible you've got a gym coach get as many answers as, as you can um and so i think it's that idea of to me the number one thing is that the ownership of it, it's it's your career you know how can you improve how can you do do better 100%. That's uh, something we spoke about with a, with a football coach, Paul Barron. Um, he spoke a lot about, you know, getting that ownership into the players early on in their careers. So, you know, <clears throat> when they're problem solving during the, the actual event and the match, um, they're able to do that uh, and trust their, their own uh, decision making. I, I think that's a real, real good point. It's quite a unique point as well, what not a lot of athletes bring up. Um, but it's definitely really, really important. Definitely, yeah. Mm. So, so we briefly touched upon, obviously, Rio Paralympics in 2016. So tell us what that experience was like, you know, going to Rio. Like, it must have been crazy. <laughs> yeah, I think it's an interesting one, you know, having the comparison of the two games. Yeah, for Rio, you know, it was just the most exciting thing, you know. Uh, yeah. Getting to a game was something I didn't think was possible. It was a dream. Um, so... 
uh, yeah, I was going in as world number one as well. So it was an interesting balance of it, it's a dream just to go. And then I, you know, want to enjoy it, the experience, but also I'm there to do a job <laughs> as well. Yeah. Uh, I do have an opportunity. And so I, I need to, you know, need to go there. So going into Rio, you know, it was, um, yeah, just, it was good because I could, I had that right balance, I think of, you know, I, I knew what I had to do, but actually I was able to use this, some of the way I was competing about the games to help my performance. Um, so for instance, the crowd actually, yeah, I was able to use the crowd, you know, to really get myself going in the right place. You know, I was able to use different things in the village to sort of help my performance. So for me, Rio was, you know, a very positive experience. In hindsight, you know, like I, I think for the level I was at, I think it was a good result. You know, at the time it was very difficult to sort of come away with silver, you know, just losing by a couple of points. It's always what if, you know, what should I done better? And but now looking back, you know, psychology was, you know, quite new at that stage. It's only kind of been a few years into it. So I wasn't as clearly defined as I was for Tokyo. So yeah, I think actually understanding as well athletes, what what level what journey you're on, I think. It's quite easy, I think, for a lot of athletes to be like, you suddenly need to be the best in the world at everything, you know. But I mm. think, and naturally, we're all very critical of ourselves, but actually understand the journey we're on. And looking back at Rio now, yeah, I think the, the journey I was on then, I, I think, you know, it was a good result. But at the time, there's always that, what if, what if, you know. Yeah. Well, 100%. Yeah. I think I read somewhere, I'm not sure if this if it was in these games, but didn't did the event like did, did it nearly not take place because of like funding cuts at, at that point or am i am i wrong there, there was a lot of rumors um you know there's rumors about the time of zika was the kind of thing oh yeah there's also you know i think the you know brazil olympic committee had spent all their funding for the paralympics on the olympics <laughs> um oh no so there was kind of worries you know and there was even during the games there was a lot of you know a lot of things going wrong you know our venue like apparently caught on fire one day someone then got squashed by like a lamp falling on them like the village was you know lots of just about all right yeah, <laughs> yeah. i remember the phrase that everyone said at the time was brazilians <laughs> so basically <laughs> like whatever happens just need to be resilient to deal with it because it's going to be a mess it's going to be a bit odd you know yeah. But it all worked out in the end, you know. <laughs> okay. You, you talked about, you know, getting in the right mindset um, before the event uh, when, when you were mentioning your experience. Um, what does your, we talk a lot about routines on this podcast. What does your sort of pre-performance routine look like? Uh, maybe um, the night before to the morning to just before you're, you're about to start. What does your pre-performance routine look like? I think it's an interesting one, I think, especially with the sport we're in, because I think when I started, again, not being an expert at all, but looking at the sports, I think a lot of it is purely internal. You, you know, it's about going there, giving your best performance. You know, if the guy's better than you, okay, it happens. I think fencing, you know, and other combat sports are quite interesting because you've got a guy opposite you that's trying to take you away from you and you're trying to do the same. Um, the other thing as well is, for us, it's not just a physical performance, but the psychology has to get you in the correct emotional state too. Um, so for me, it's about how do I see everything the opponent's doing? Um, you know, how can I pick up on those small cues? How can I be in the right state to tactically 
compete all those answers in my head and pick, pick the right action to do. So it's, it's quite a lot to do. So for me, it takes a while to really understand what's the ideal state for you. Yeah. For me personally, um, I need a lot of sort of creativity. If, yeah, if I get too nervous, I end up just, you know, my muscles tighten up, my brain's yeah. not clear. I'm just thinking of one thing and I'm, I fence terribly. Um, if I try and relax too much, um, I end up just not committing, that my attacks are slow, but, you know, I'm not sharp on what I'm thinking. So for me, the right state has a lot of creativity in it and sort of sharpness. So for me, I kind of see my, my brain as like a, like a scales of different areas of what I want to do and what can you grab to get that. So for me, actually, the enjoyment really helps my creativity. So I think for a lot of people, it might look like a strange psych process, a lot of the stuff I do. Um, but actually, it's about where am I at, where am I at, at this moment, throughout the day, constantly asking yourself, what's what, what's my level and yeah. grabbing what you need so for me it could be okay I'm, I'm i'm too stressed i'm gonna go relax listen to music okay i need yeah i'm too relaxed okay i'm gonna go i'm gonna go tease one of the russian guys you know yeah. <laughs> and i'm gonna i'm gonna go have a laugh with the volunteers or so with this stuff it looks quite oh, i can't believe what but it looks quite unusual and unprofessional but everything's for a purpose and it's about what do I need at this moment? Okay, how do I get that? I can do this, I can do that. So for me, it, it very much varies, um, but it's all to create whatever it might be to get that optimum sort of state. Mm. I, was, I was just going to say that's quite similar to, I don't know the names, but you know that recent UFC fight that happened? Um, the two, you know. Um, and yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's the French guy. I think he, a lot of people were picking up on him because before fights, he's always like smiling, very calm. Like he's about to get in the ring to fight, uh, you know, huge fight. Uh, Like he's very calm, you know, he's like looking at the crowd, you know. And I think a lot of people were questioning that approach, but Mm. that's similar to you. You kind of need that to be in that state, you know, the relaxed state. That's how you perform best. And yeah, not a lot of people understand that, but yeah, it's interesting. I think as well, a lot of time people, they think if you do sport, you have to be like Michael Phelps with the hood up, sit in the corner, <laughs> stare at everyone, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it comes with, you know, it really is whatever suits. And, you know, my team's really small, only already only a few of us, but each one of us have got such a different routine. Yeah. You know, for me, my routine, yeah, like I said, I could be laughing and joking. My teammate hoodie on headphones on staring at the wall you know and it's that thing of there's no right answer it's yeah. incredibly individual whatever suits and you know whatever you have to do you kind of can do that no yeah there's a theory called individual zones what's more functioning and it talks about you know everyone has a different level of arousal that they should be able to perform with um it sounds like you do a lot of self-talk you know constantly asking yourself questions i'm interested to know right before you're about to compete we had a guest on Isis Holt and she spoke about, um, she's got a bracelet that says more than just this. Um, and that helps her like right before she's about to perform. I'm interested to know, what do you say to yourself without them cues of, you know, able to go and wind up the Russians or <laughs> you're not able to go and listen to music. What, what do you say to yourself right before to try and facilitate that creativity? So for me, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't really have something I say to myself me visualization helps a lot okay. um, and kind of having a clear plan so 
I have a sort of physical routine. So my last thing is kind of having a set routine, you know, epi- the, the weapon, feeling it in my fingers on the floor. What does, it, what does it feel like in my hand? Does it feel right? What does it feel like, you know, left arm pushing? How do I imagine? So one of the things I found useful was, yeah, imagine this fencer who's my idol, like, has, what's his technique like? What's the speed of this other guy? So I'm kind of getting ideas in my head of actually how, how I want to be. Um, and then really thinking, how do I want to fence? You know, what tactically, what am I going to do? Um, and then, so with our matches, you know, it's the final stage is 15 points. After each hit, the referee calls stop. You have a few seconds, you know, well, maybe one second, <laughs> basically, you know, stop, come back, ready to start again. And so that's a very important process is you've got two seconds almost. What do you do in that time? And for me, it's trying to be as calculated as possible. Just yeah. what happened, assess the situation, what do I need to do next, and how am I going to do it? Yeah, I can imagine that's such a like pivotal moment because especially if you've just made like a mistake at that point, um, you've really got to you know compose yourself really quick to be able to bounce back. I can't imagine how difficult that is to get back into you know your optimal zone of functioning, that arousal. Um, yeah, I can, yeah, two seconds as well. That's uh, that's really short. <laughs> yeah. What were some of the main takeaways you found from that um, Paralympics, and then you've t- taken into Tokyo? Um, so for me, you know, really made me realise actually the psychology is so. It's, every time you always hear how important it is, but you still don't quite appreciate it until you get to the, you know certain competitions. You realise it's even more important than I thought. <laughs> and yeah. again, again, and um, yeah, for me in Tokyo in Rio, it was the same thing where, you know, in Rio, I knew it was important and I could really feel the difference. So it was my number one focus for the next cycle. And, um, and then going into Tokyo, it was the number one thing that won me the medals, to be honest, um, because at the end of the day, everyone there, they can do the exact same moves as everyone else, just as fast as everyone else, you know. Um, and so what's the difference, you know? Yeah. Yeah what makes you say that like in terms of like the the mental side like what what, what was it that that made the difference specifically so, so for me it was again in tokyo basically what happened was i had a strong psychological plan um been working on it for years got to the games not competed in years and i was in a completely different state <laughs> than how i expected um and the first day basically competition went really badly where I wasn't able to adapt. Um, and to me, that, that lack of adaption was, was the main issue. Then the next, I think then what won me the gold the next day was how I was able to create a new plan, able to adapt to my psychology for the current position. I think I wasn't able to do that. I wasn't sort of mature enough at, at, in, in Rio and didn't have the experience to, to be able to do that. Um, whereas I think with this game is actually that being able to change that that really made made the difference of yeah not having just such a strict plan that you know you, you kind of have to do that and you're so kind of stuck in your ways but just that ability to assess the situation and change really we've had a lot of guests who competed at um the tokyo 2020 paralympics you know what was it like with the delay did that negatively impact you um or did you feel like you know, it was a challenge and you, you took it head on. How, how, how would you feel in going into that? I think for me, 
uh, the last you know the year before Tokyo was yeah you know, pretty horrendous to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it, it was tough having an extra year. Um, and the, the biggest challenge for me was how do I train effectively? Yeah. Um, so the, you know the problem is trying to get a challenge in, in training is always difficult, and so usually we go to different countries around the world to get that. And also competitions, they're a really good way of seeing where you're at and fencing the world's best people. The problem I had with, with going into Tokyo was I have had, had only really had, you know, one guy that was quite new to the sport and two other guys that were in a different disability category. Um, so they're kind of quite a lot sort of, um, it was quite a big difference in physicality. Um, so for me, I didn't really have any realistic training going into the games. Um, and weather psychology is so important there was no way to properly test that. Mm. Um, so it really felt like trying to make the best of the situation, but at the end of the day, kind of going in blind. Um, so, yeah, it was a very, very tough, tough, tough situation, really. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about your journey to the final then, because it, uh, it was a big journey. Um, in the semi-finals, you had to beat Gangsun, who, which was a repeat of the 2016 final, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm, how was you feeling going into that? I imagine uh, it was it must have been an unbelievable feeling to sort of get revenge. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, you know, and for me, the competition was where I spoke before about actually my, my psychology wasn't good and I wasn't in a good state. That I went through to, to the FA day as well. So I started off, I was able to win the matches, but just about scrape through them, not as I'd like to, you know, my psychology was in such a bad place where I just couldn't really see what the opponent was doing much. And, and so the whole day was a big kind of, big kind of question of how do I change that? How do I, you know, and the previous match again, was able to win, but it was pretty sketchy of how I was fencing. So it was a big stress of, okay, now I've got, again, one of the best in the world, beat me in the last games. So, you know, he, he, he was more capable than anyone. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, I was really stressed going into that, but I just had to trust in my process of go to the process, do your best, see what happens. Uh, and actually the match uh, went really well for me. Um, it's one of the most sort of, um, one of the biggest points differences I've had with this guy for years. And it, to me, it all came together. I had a plan, I had, did some more work, spoke to my coach, gave me some really great ideas and really was able to put it together for this match. There was a really interesting point where um, I'm sort of winning this match. It's all going very good. And I'm kind of hitting, analyzing, next hit. No emotion, purely just analytical. And then I look over behind behind him um, was my teammate, um, Dimitri. And he's one of my best friends, you know. And he was fencing in the, in the semifinal as well. Um, and I just saw the guy who's fencing celebrating as he just beat my beaten Dimitri. Um, and so that was a, a challenge again of, okay, I kind of knew it was a possibility and we'd kind of planned for it, but actually seeing it while you're fencing was a bit, whoa, okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. so it, it took me a couple of hits to kind of, again, cut out the, that excess stuff of, okay, not, not, you know, just need to get back to my own performance and back to that. So. That was again an interesting challenge, which I kind of wasn't expecting as well. Yeah, what sort of confidence did that give you going into the final against? Obviously, he's ranked second in the world, Maxim Shaborov um, of Russia. Like, how was you feeling going into that final now after you've just, you know, 
done one better than he did um, in the in the previous Paralympics. Yeah, it re- yeah, really made you know made me feel a lot better and more a case of the process was good rather than the match yeah. was victorious. You know, um, so for me, I had the process; it worked really well, and I knew what I had to do in the final. Um, going into the final, for me, it was really nice to see actually how nervous uh, Shabarov was in the final. Um, yeah. I think for me, I kind of I've had the experience; I've worked on it a lot, so I felt a lot more comfortable going into this, and. I think it's one of those situations until you're there, you can't imagine the stress, you know, yeah. <laughs> five years of your life, you know, you know, just for this one moment. Um, but it just has to be purely process, one step, next step, next step. Um, and yeah, at the end of the day, the, the match went really well. I was able to, you know, keep control, I was able to keep focused, um, get in the right headspace I wanted to be at. And yeah, eventually it all, it all came together in the end. Mm. Yes, yeah, so obviously you won gold. Um, you know, what was that feeling like? What were the thoughts going through your head when when you become victorious and uh, you lifted that gold medal when it got put over your neck? What what were your feelings then? It really was like the most amazing feeling. You know, yeah, like started two thousand ten, you know, just the dream of doing this, and then yeah, just I can't say the the feeling of just happiness, relief. You know, so much really and. Rio to me was such a, it was four years, five years after Rio of getting a bad feeling of I could have done more. Yeah, I was so close to the gold. And so to always have almost that, all that sort of pressure and stress kind of washed away, you know. And the cycle had been emotionally very tough, and especially since COVID. And again, to have that kind of all washed away and, you know, actually it was all worthwhile in the end. And yeah, just really a lot of emotions taken. <laughs> And congratulations. Uh, I, I couldn't imagine it myself. Um, just touching on, um, you know, the sport of fencing. Um, you've won medals in both Epi and Sable at world level. For our listeners, you know, what are the main differences between the two? And for myself personally, like, I, I'm not 100% sure. Um, you know, what is the difference between the two? I know there's a third as well. Um, so, so what are the main differences? So with, with the three weapons, the main differences are the swords used themselves are different, um, and it, they're all separate competitions. Um, yeah. And not only is the sword different, but the way they're fenced and the rules are different. Um, so my main event is Epe. So this one, the target area is everywhere above the waist for wheelchair fences, and uh, and everywhere in able-bodied fencing. So with this, if you, you know, it, it's you know kind of like the most realistic. You know, if you both hit. You both get a point. You hit at the same time. Both get a point. Mm. Um, and so, what happens with this one? Because you've got such a big target area, um, it becomes a lot more tactical. So you've got more time to set up actions. You know, how can I create different tricks? And so it kind of becomes that. With saber, um, you score you score points with cutting rather than the other two weapons. You score with stabbing. So physically, it's quite different. Plus yeah. also the rules of it are different. So although they seem like subtle differences, you kind of need a different mindset for each of them. You need different strategies, different ways of fencing, different physicality as well. So they're all quite different sort of um, quite niches early here. Yeah. I saw in an interview with uh, Daryl Homer who described saber fencing to be like Formula One racing, like how aggressive, fast, and it requires like split decision-making. 
surely that requires a lot of psychological strength to be good at like how quick you have to be thinking and reactive um what made you compete um obviously did, did you train to be epi and then you just decided to take on saber or do you train across all three like what was sort of your process going into because obviously you've competed at world level and won at that level so you must be like really really good at both how did that come a, come a, uh, come across so uh, in, in wheelchair fencing, um, fencers, um, they fence two weapons always. And right. especially for Tokyo, where the qualification was done across two weapons rather than singly. Um, so I've, I've always done two. Um, and it's been a big challenge trying to adapt because what's good for one is kind of counterintuitive for the other. Um, and even the decision making. So with Epe, because you've got more time to set things up, you kind of need to see in the moment what's happening. Whereas with Sabre, because it can be so instant, you need mm. to make decisions before, you know, before right. the hit that even happened. Um, so psychologically as well, they're quite different. So yeah, so for, me, so for me, like, yeah, I kind of had the two and it's been having the mix of both of that's been quite good because I'm able to put the strengths of both across, kind of crossover as well. Um, so although they're quite different and they can yeah. be counterintuitive, Actually, it's quite useful to take the strengths from both as well. Okay. How come uh, did they include that rule for, you know, if, if you wanted to qualify for the Paralympics? What was the main reason for that? Was it just to, um, I don't know, yeah. Was it? Really not sure, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, like, yeah, it, it must have... Uh, it must have been challenging for some people that were really good at Epe or Sabre, you know, like it's, it's a huge, uh, huge difference. It's like saying, I don't know, uh, for football, you have to be good at that skill and that skill to, you know, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's strange. It was, it was a challenge for me is where, where Epe has always been my strength. Um, yeah. And, you know, I hadn't really had results in others. I kind of then had to give more training time to those as well to ensure qualification. So it kind of meant you had to kind of split your training um, between the two a bit more. So, yeah, it was certainly it was an interesting one. You mentioned taking the strengths from both disciplines. Um, I'm interested to know, are there different styles in Epe um, for maybe, you mentioned you can set things up or you can be quite reactive to what, to what the opponent's doing. What's sort of your style when, when, when you're going into, into an event? So, yeah, within the weapon as well, everyone has very different styles. Um, and especially with Epe, where if, the light, if as long as the light comes on, who cares how you did it, basically? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so for me, my style is kind of um, mostly tactics. Um, so where, for instance, the Russian guys, they're super strong physically. Chinese guys are super sort of uh, technical, you know, really sharp and fast. So for me, I kind of, my biggest strength is tactics. Okay. Um, so I really enjoy kind of, um, yeah, creating different situations, creating different moves. You know, how can I trick the opponent in different kind of unusual ways um so it kind of meant that my style can often look quite weird <laughs> um but it's kind of come from my, my strengths of how do i kind of create a system and you know different ways of kind of creating these kind of tricks okay so is that like maybe like doing feints you know like uh is that what you, is that the word feints yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. i can imagine um, there's all sorts more than <laughs> yeah yeah of course of course but you know like it's kind of like boxing you know when you, when you make that little movement and then you know they play that space. He's, he's on the route to being pro <laughs> yeah yeah no don't listen to him don't listen to him no but um on this podcast we also like to cover um the coach athlete relationship 
Um, can you talk us through your relationship with your coach? Um, is it Peter Rome? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. What has he been your coach since the start, or have you changed coaches since you got to a higher level? You know, how much of a help has he been? Yeah, so I've kind of had a, a few different coaches. So the first coach I started off with, he was just sort of um, basically just 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 a local club coach. Um, then from there, when I wanted to take things a bit more seriously, I kind of um, traveled to a different coach. Uh, we've done wheelchair fencing um, before, uh, fencing for Hungary. So I kind of worked with him for a while. Um, but I've known Pete uh, since basically since I first started, but hadn't kind of had one one to one. So I kind of have a, had a few different coaches, very different styles. And then things weren't really working with the coach I had before, before Rio. So I hadn't worked with Pete before, kind of made the decision to change coaches um, less than a year before the games, which was quite a kind of, at the time, yeah. like, I'm making the best decision here. But I think Pete's approach has been, I mean, a, a really interesting approach where I think a lot of coaches, they kind of get focused in, if you want to be the best at fencing, just do fencing. Um, whereas one of the big improvements I got from Pete was he, he kind of sees you as a, a whole package. So, you know, mm. he, he's got a sports science background as well. So he really used that to kind of, you know, input into the fencing and kind of merge everything together. And as well, his understanding of fencing really meant, you know, you could kind of really work together to create new things and find the best solutions. And now I think with, with Pete's ethos, it's, really getting us to understand it ourselves and lead it ourselves so he never comes up and says do this do that you know or try this try that it's always asking a question to get us to understand it ourselves and and for us to go to him and say ask say something or ask something so yes it's a very very different relationship to have seen other coaches work but i think it really creates an environment of athlete leading it and gets that maturity and the most important thing is when you're fencing it's only you out there you know uh, yeah. and I've seen too many fences look so confused for the coaches to tell them they don't know what's going on yeah. waiting for the coach to sort of remote control to give, make them to do whatever yeah. um, so I think yeah his way of working is quite different but I think it really creates the best results mm. throughout I was asking like this kind of question with the coach athlete relationship that has been a common theme across all of it, across all successful coaches and all successful athletes is, you know, the coach seeing the athlete as a whole package, as a whole person. Um, I think we have we have a lot of coach li- listeners, so I feel like that's really important for them to hear as well, to reflect on their practice and, um, you know, see the athletes as a person as well first, as yeah. well as as well as an athlete and getting them results. Um, it was definitely prevalent in the most recent podcast of Isis Holt. Um, yeah, that was a, it was a class. So, you know, when you're competing, is is the coach, like, does his input help a lot in terms of, like, can he, I'm trying to think of a sport where it could, I don't know, um, let's say boxing, you know, the, between the, the rounds, they can go, they can have, like, a little tactical chat. Is that is that kind of similar to you or, or is everything done before the competition and then it's only you and then that's it? Or how does that kind of work? Yes, we have quite a sort of... Um big input from the coach so on the morning of the competition it'll be the coach that you, you fence with so he'll get you working and working the right things before the match warmed up seeing yeah. the right kind of stuff and then during the matches as well so um it, like even in between the matches I mean, he's there to sort of get you in the right space help you out what he needs to 
then during the match itself, uh, he sat next to you um, while you're fencing, to, just off the side. Um, so yeah, whenever there's, so we have um, the way our sort of the final stages of competition look. We kind of have uh, 15 points, uh, three sets of three minutes, um, sort of fencing time. Uh, so between those blocks, the coach can come over and have a discussion. You have one minute. Um, so with the idea, the coach can really have an input. And I think, again, I think this is one thing that Pete really does well is rather than other coaches, they say, you must do this, you must try this. You know, a lot of the time, what Pete says is nothing to do with fencing. Yeah. Um, I think where I think where coaches go can go wrong is they see themselves as playing a character or doing a role. Whereas I think a good coach is basically a tool. They do whatever they need to do on that day to get in the right space. Um, so yeah, so, some of, some of the, the, the biggest impacts I've had from, from you know coaches kept coaching before has been nothing technical. It's just been a stupid joke <laughs> or mm. you know you know whatever it might be, just a comment or something. Actually, if that gets you in the right psychological state, that's going to have a much bigger impact than telling you to do something which you're not seeing or you're not able to do or so yeah i think that's very important that idea of you know coach being a tool doing whatever they need to do yeah and at that point i feel like giving too much like tactical information is just going to overload the athlete you know mentally during the competition like all that work should be well in my opinion should be kind of done before you know the actual actual um competition so so yeah it's uh, it's interesting to hear his kind of approach um so yeah um, so kind of moving on um, so at the start of the year you were appointed and to you were appointed as an MBE so huge congratulations, congratulations. yeah <laughs> huge congratulations <laughs> um, so how did that feel like getting that news yeah it really was like so, such an amazing sort of feeling and also quite bizarre I think the thing is as an athlete you always kind of harsh on yourself you know you're always saying yeah I'm not good enough in training, never good enough, always more and more. Um, you get to a competition, no, you know, no one follows wheelchair fencing. <laughs> You're kind of in your own little bubble, mm. fencing, especially at the top level, you end up fencing the same people. So it kind of feels like you're on your own, doing your own thing, fencing the same people. Um, and so things like this, they feel such, they're quite a shock because it's something kind of external, you know, that's kind of like makes you realize actually, you are doing something kind of so doing something well <laughs> and kind mm. of that's something other people actually can look up to and just quite you know a strange feeling because you kind of always see yourself as you know everyone's better than you always want to be better you want to do more and more and things like this they're yeah really amazing to kind of have that external thing on you mm. when is the ceremony uh yeah they've still not said actually they said oh. A lot of delays, so I'm still not sure. <laughs> yeah, hopefully soon. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm just going to quickly over and done with, make sure you get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh, God. So, so what's next for you then? So what are your kind, kind of goals and ambitions now? Like, tell us. It could be outside of sport as well. Like, the full package. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so for me, um, it, we have sort of um, uh, some World Cups coming up. Um, sort of March and then basically carrying on to European Championships at the end of the year. Um, so for me, yeah, I'd really like to really use these competitions to how do I really improve my process, really improve, you know, the whole the whole package of a competition. 
Um, so I think these are really useful things for that. And then also European Championships. Um, I've, I've always come silver, um, like always 15, 14, 15, 13 on the scores. So it's been the one that's always been really frustrating. So um, yeah, I've got the kind of the performance goals of, okay, I want to try this and that, but also got a nice outcome one of Europeans where actually it's a goal that I've not got and I, over, I really want that. So it's nice to have a bit of both. Okay. What, what another thing I wanted to ask, uh, I should have asked this earlier, but uh, <laughs> what were the main things you learned from Tokyo? Although you won gold, you know, there's always room to improve. So where do you feel like you can improve next time and what are you going to take into the next Paralympics? I think a big one for me, you know, I kind of learned from Tokyo was kind of looking back, I was like, I should have pushed more um, in daily, daily training. So there were things I could have done better, things I wasn't happy with, but didn't really speak up, you know. Um, I think for me, where I'm naturally quite shy and, you know, not really good at this type of stuff, I think, again, it's, what else can I personally improve on, you know? How can I make things better day to day? Um, and another big one was actually psychology, even more important than I thought before. <laughs> um, you always think it's important, but every time it just reminds you, so... I think, you know, I would have liked them more, you know, more robust stuff. So more contingency plans, you know, for what could have happened, what about this happened and having plans for everything um, and different ideas. And so I think those two things are the big ones for me, really. Okay. You know, what's fantastic is that you've had that realization yourself, that kind of moment to reflect. So despite winning, you know, the, the three medals you did and had a, had a successful Paralympics, you know, that's what great athletes do. They they reflect always, always. So yeah, well done from from us sports psychologists. Well done. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna be cheering you on in the next Paralympics, and obviously the Europeans. I'm gonna be watching out for you to score that gold. So yeah, uh, yeah, they were all the questions we had for you. So um, you know, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your time with us. Uh, we really appreciate it. A lot of valuable information there for not only athletes but coaches as well. So. Definitely a great podcast. Um, Definitely. Yeah, no worries. Normally at this point, you know, I give the guest the opportunity to say anything they want to shout out or anything they've got going on. All your socials and that will be in the description of the YouTube video. Is there anything you want to say? No, all happy that. Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Fantastic. Okay, so we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you could please share it with your friends or someone you would feel will benefit from it. Most importantly, like, subscribe, comment down below any questions or guests you'd like us to get in the future. Also, go follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Links will be in the description of the YouTube video. Or find us at Master in the Mind podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.